0: We all have a story in our heads that we use to explain the world. What is yours? I'm not talking about Little Red Riding Hood or Hansel and Gretel or Star Wars or Iron Man, at least not directly. What I'm talking about is the beliefs that each of us have that we use to make sense of our world as it actually is in all of its beauty and in all of its brokenness. The story that we use to answer the big questions, questions like, why am I here? And where do I find meaning and purpose in life? And so I'm going to ask you again, what is the story that you use To make sense of this world that we live in. Let me describe for you three of the most common stories. The first is what I will call the materialist story. This is the belief that what we can see and what we can measure is all that we get. It all started with a bang, a big one, and eventually it's all going to wind down with a whimper. There's life, there's death, and then nothing. In this story, we are the product of random chance and blind evolution. And so meaning and purpose and right and wrong exist only to the extent that we create them. They exist only in our minds or in our communities. The second story is one that I will call the religious story. This is the belief that some sort of God made us and that our purpose is to be successful. Meaning is found in success, which is typically measured by the metrics of wealth or power or fame. And so the purpose of life is to do everything that we can in order to secure these things. And so right and wrong are determined by our purpose, If it's something that gets us closer to success, then it's right. If it's something that inhibits or deprives us of success, then it is wrong. This is a pretty popular story. It's one that many, many people live by. The third story is the Christian story. This is the one that we find in the Bible. The story of a good God who created a beautiful world for us to live in and to rule with Him. A world that we ultimately broke, but one that He is redeeming and will one day finally and forever fix. In this story, purpose and meaning, right and wrong, are not something to be created, but something to be discovered. Discovered in the God who reveals himself to us in the pages of the Bible and in the person of Jesus Christ. We all have a story in our heads that we use to explain the world. What is yours? Whatever our story, whether it's the materialist one, the religious one, or the Christian one, There is another question that it needs to be able to answer, and that is the question of suffering. Our story needs to be able to tell us why is there suffering in the world? Is it real? Is it random? Is it something to be avoided or embraced or just ignored? What does it mean? And how is it supposed to be responded to? We're going to talk about that this morning. As I mentioned a moment ago, we are currently in a series from the uh, New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. We've learned that this book is really a letter written by the great missionary and church planter, Paul, to a very new church in the city of Thessalonica, uh, which is in modern-day Greece. This was a city that was very big, very prosperous, very religious, and not very Christian, And so Paul wrote this letter to the church there, to the Christians there, to help them to understand how to live well and faithfully in their city, including how to understand and respond to the suffering that they were experiencing. And so this morning we are going to see Paul thank God that the Thessalonians received the gospel message as if it was a message from God himself. We're going to learn why Paul is convinced that they have, in fact, received it this way. And we're going to consider how all of this shows us that the Christian story is the best story at dealing with suffering, both in explaining it and in being able to redeem it. And so, if you haven't already, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're using one of our Red Bibles, it's on page 1835, I think. 1835 in the Red Bible. Now, as you're turning there, um, you've got to remember several months before Paul wrote this letter, uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had traveled to the city of Thessalonica to share the gospel and to plant this church. When they first got there, they shared the gospel in the Jewish synagogue. But after only a few weeks of doing this, they get kicked out by the Jews who were there. But not before a few of the Jews and many of the Greeks who were there in the synagogue responded to the gospel that Paul was teaching, preaching, this good news that the long-promised Messiah had come. His name is Jesus, and He is the Son of God in human flesh. Well, shortly after they'd been expelled from the synagogue, the Jews who had rejected the gospel, they formed a mob, incited a riot, and and forced Paul and Silas to flee from the city. And so it is in light of these events that in this letter, Paul tells the Thessalonians that he continues to thank God that they received his message as if it was from God himself. Look at verse 13 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He writes, and we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is. The word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, they are thanking God because of how the Thessalonians responded to the gospel, which Paul here refers to as the word of God. Now Paul is not just thankful that the Thessalonians gave him an audience, that they showed some interest in his ideas and his thoughts. What Paul is thanking the Thessalonians for is that they recognize, they've recognized that his, they recognize his message for what it really is. It is the message from God for them. This is not just Paul's new idea about how best to live in this world, nor is this Paul's perspective on how to find joy and happiness in life. No, this is God's message for them, mediated to them through Paul. The Thessalonians have recognized this. And so they have received it, they've received Paul's message, the Word of God, as the Word of God. Now we should probably pause here for a moment and ask ourselves an important question. And that is, are we, are you, receiving the Word of God like the Thessalonians did? Do you hear the good news about Jesus? Do you read the scriptures and accept it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God? Now, this is, of course, easy for us to do with when this word agrees with our sensibilities, you know, when we see it tell us about that we're supposed to love our neighbor or we're supposed to help the poor, we hear about how we can be forgiven of all of our sins and our brokenness and, and you know, pretty much everyone is willing to receive and accept that this is part of the message of God for us. But what about the parts that challenge our sensibilities and our perspectives, the parts that describe God's wrath towards sin and sinners? Are we accepting this not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God? Or how about the command to love and forgive and bless not just our loved ones and our neighbors, but even our enemies? Are we accepting this not as a human word, but as it actually is, the Word of God. The marriage and sexual ethic of one man, one woman for life. Are we accepting this not as a human word, but as it actually is? The Word of God. See, the Bible, all of the Bible is the Word of God, and so we need to receive it as the Word of God. As we return to the text, we are now going to learn why Paul has so much confidence that the Thessalonians have received the gospel, not as a human word, but as the Word of God. Paul is absolutely convinced of this because the Thessalonians have remained faithful to the Word of God, even in the face of suffering. At the end of verse 13 there, Paul indicates that he can see evidence that the Word of God is at work in them. Now, there's lots of different ways that the Word of God can be at work in someone or in a group of people. And so this could look like a lot of different things. But here, Paul has one thing in mind in particular. And what he's thinking about specifically is how it is that they are responding to suffering. Um, I'm going to start in about halfway through verse 13 here. He writes, You accepted it, the word of God, the gospel, not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things that these churches suffered from the Jews. So Paul can tell that the Thessalonians have received the gospel, not as a human word, but as the word of God, because they have remained faithful to it even in the face of suffering. Despite experiencing difficulty and opposition, they've not abandoned Paul's message about Jesus. They're holding firmly to it, even though they are paying a significant cost, a great cost for doing so. Now, why would anyone remain faithful? Why would anyone hold tightly to something even in the face of suffering? There's really only one reason. Because they've been convinced that it is true And that it is important. Verse 14, Paul describes the Thessalonians as imitating the churches in Judea. Now, he's not talking about worship style or preaching style. But whether they have buildings that are are outfitted with pews or chairs. um, Obviously not, because back then they didn't even have buildings. They met in people's houses. Maybe sitting on cushions, benches, maybe even the floor. I don't know. What Paul is talking about here is their shared experience of suffering and their shared response to it. Both of the churches, both in Thessalonica and in Jerusalem, they're remaining faithful to Jesus and to each other, even though it's gotten really hard to do so. It's important that we remember that the church began in Jerusalem in Judea and among the Jews, but that very quickly, those who rejected the message of Jesus began opposing those who embraced it. In fact, you can read all about this in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And ironically enough, Paul is is actually part of this opposition early on in his life. As a young man, he had made it his life's mission to capture, even to kill, Jews who were followers of Jesus. Jesus. But then he meets Jesus, and his whole world changes. And suddenly his life takes on a very different meaning, and his purpose just changes direction. And Paul began spreading the very message that he had previously done everything he could to try and suppress. And in the process, both he and the other Jewish Christians in and around Jerusalem, they suffered mightily for this. But they persisted. They remained faithful because they could see that their message was true and that it was important. And they had accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. And so Paul here, he's explaining to the Thessalonians that what they're experiencing, the suffering that they're experiencing at the hands of the Greeks and the Romans who are in their city is very similar to what the Jewish Christians in Judea were experiencing at the hands of the Jews in their city. Now, as Paul continues on at this point, he has some pretty harsh words for the Jews in Judea who continue to oppose him and the Jerusalem church. And so I want to read it for you, and then I'm going to make a couple of important comments about it. Um, I'm going to start again in verse 14, though, so you get the flow of thought here. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God. And are hostile to everyone, in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Paul here, he provides a, a pretty scathing critique of the Jews in and around Jerusalem who've continued to oppose the church that's there. And he reminds the Thessalonian Christians that the Jews have had a long history of resisting God's plans and purposes for them and for the world. They often opposed the Old Testament prophets that God had sent to instruct and to correct them. Many of them rejected Jesus as Messiah and they happily conspired with the Romans in order to kill him. And even now, a majority... Even now in in Paul's day, a majority of them continue to resist God's plans and purposes for the Gentiles by trying to hinder Paul and others from sharing the gospel message with them. And then at the end of verse 16, Paul indicates that their sin has now become so great that God has brought divine judgment against them. That's what Paul means when he says, the wrath of God has come upon them at last. God has done something to punish the Jews for rejecting and hindering the plan and purposes of God. We are just not sure exactly what he's referring to here. Some think uh, that this might be a reference to the expulsion of Jews from Rome in 49 AD by Emperor Claudius could also be that Paul is pointing to a violent revolt in Jerusalem during Passover that happened that same year in which thousands of Jews lost their lives. Another possibility is a terrible famine that took place in AD 47, or maybe it was a different revolt um, around 45 AD that was also violently crushed. Paul might even be referring to the sudden death of Herod Agrippa in 44 AD or he might be referring to something entirely else. We just don't know um, in part because we're not precisely sure exactly what year this letter was written. Although I think we can assume that the Thessalonians did in fact know exactly what Paul was talking about here but either way Paul's point is clear enough for us today and that is that Resisting God and oppressing his people has consequences. And even if God's people are too few or too weak to be able to defend themselves, in the end, God's justice will prevail and God's people will be vindicated. Now, the second comment that I want to make about this text relates to the issue of anti-Semitism, which is hostility toward or discrimination against the Jews as a group. This is a great moral evil that has made a recent resurgence in parts of our country and across the world. And the reasons to try to explain this or even to justify it, they are many, um, from religious to historical to spiritual to racial to political. Whatever the supposed motivation for it, anti-Semitism is a great moral evil. And I bring this up. Because, given our current climate in which anti Semitism has once again made a resurgence, this is a text that could be misread and misapplied to try and justify it. And that would be a mistake. But the risk of this is real. And even the church has gotten this wrong in the past. And if we're ever tempted to think this way, it is really important that we understand and remember what the Bible has to say on this matter. The Bible tells us that all people, including the Jews, are image bearers of God and are therefore worthy of honor, love, and care. The Bible tells us that it is through the Jewish people that God has promised to bless the entire world. And the human author of this text, the greatest missionary and church planner this world has ever known, was a Jew. And most importantly, when God became one of us, he became a Jew a Jew that we know by the name Jesus. And Jesus, the God-man who lived and died and rose again and now rules over our world from his throne in heaven, is still a Jewish man. And so to embrace or even to accept anti-Semitism is to reject Jesus. Now, I started off this message by reminding you that we all have a story in our heads that helps us make sense of the world in all of its beauty, in all of its brokenness. A set of beliefs that explain how we got here, A story that tells us where and how to find meaning and purpose for our lives. That is a lot of weight and responsibility for our story to bear. But as we decide which story is the true story that we are going to live by, the story that we are going to stake our lives on, there is another burden that we need to make sure that our story can in fact bear. See, we all need a story that can deal with suffering. A story that can be honest and clear-eyed about suffering. A story that doesn't try to deny it, or to ignore it, or to minimize it. A story that doesn't try to romanticize it, or abstract it, or even try to justify it. Right now I'm reading a book uh, written by the late um, Timothy Keller called Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. It is really good. But one of the things that he addresses in this book is the challenge of dismissing the idea that God is real and knowable and then trying to assert any sort of definitive meaning and purpose in life. It simply can't be done. See, if God is not real, then meaning and purpose, they're not discoverable. If there's no creator who has designed us, then there's no objective meaning or purpose for us to discover. And all we're left with is to try and create meaning. And purpose for ourselves. And many, many people do this. But one of the problems with created meaning and purpose is its durability. It struggles to hold up, especially in the face of suffering. Keller goes on in the book to show that it isn't just the secular story, the no-God story that struggles to respond to suffering. See, every story and belief does. But in the Bible, in Christianity, we find better ways to understand it. He writes, Part of the richness of the Christian life lies in the ways Christianity gives meaning that are distinct, not only from secularism, but from other religions as well. Unlike the concept of karma, Christianity teaches that suffering is often unfair, not merited by actions from a former life. Unlike Buddhism, Christianity teaches that suffering is a terrible reality, not an illusion to be transcended with stoic detachment. Unlike ancient fatalism, such as the Greek Stoics or other shame and honor cultures, Christianity finds nothing particularly noble about suffering. It should not be welcomed. Yet unlike secularism, Christianity teaches that suffering can be meaningful. That it can make you something great. The reason for all these differences is that the Christian view of the universe is so different. See, according to the Bible, suffering is not an illusion, it is real and it is terrible. According to Christianity, suffering is often unfair neither earned nor directly traceable to past choices we've made. According to the Bible, suffering is not inherently noble, nor something to be embraced for its own sake. But Christianity, the Christian story, teaches that suffering can be meaningful. And we see this no more clearly than in Jesus, in his life, in his death, and in his return to life again. See, when we consider Jesus, we discover a God who did not stay far off and removed, above the fray and untouched by suffering. Instead, he took on human flesh and he lived amongst us. And in doing so, he experienced firsthand the kinds of suffering that are pervasive in our broken world. He was born into poverty. He was slandered. He was rejected. He lost his earthly father to death. He was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends. He endured physical and psychological torture and an agonizing death on the cross. For Jesus, suffering was not an illusion. It was very real and terrible. And what he suffered was unfair because he had never done anything wrong. In his suffering, it wasn't inherently noble. In fact, it was deeply immoral. It was the product of a corrupt system that cared very little for justice. But at the same time, Jesus' suffering took on infinite meaning and value. It displayed his glory and it redeemed us. We are saved because Jesus remained faithful in the midst of suffering. And this table that's set here in our midst memorializes the pinnacle of Jesus' suffering, his death on the cross. The bread which is there represents his body which was broken for us. The cup that you see there represents his blood which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. This was suffering, this was death that was always part of God's great unstoppable rescue plan. And it was suffering that Jesus embraced, knowingly, intentionally, Because of his great love for you. Are you being treated poorly right now? Or have you experienced loss because of your commitment to Jesus? Or to the truths that are taught to us in the pages of scripture? If that's true of you this morning, talk to Jesus about that. He gets it. Have you been slandered? Have you been rejected? Have you been betrayed? Talk to Jesus about that because he knows what it's like to experience those things and he has answers for you. Are you hurting because because of the loss of a loved one, whether it's through conflict or through death? Talk to Jesus about that. Let him minister to your heart as we share this meal with him and with each other. Um, Isaac, would you come and Distribute with me. This bread represents the body of Christ which is broken for us. He suffered in order to break the power of Satan and death over us. Take and eat. The cup represents the blood of Christ spilled for us. He suffered so that we can be forgiven of our sins. Take and drink. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your great unstoppable plan to rescue and to redeem a people for yourself. And for making us part of that. We know that you made us to represent you and to rule this world with you. And yet we did not remain loyal to you. Thank you for not giving up on us. And instead sending your son to be our true rescuer king. Jesus, thank you for trading the glory of heaven for the humility of a manger. For taking on human flesh so that you could be born among us as one of us for experiencing the inherent suffering in our world in order to show us how to truly live in the midst of it and then dying for all the times and ways we haven't done so. Holy Spirit, please continue your good work in us. Help us to see and believe more clearly than ever that the gospel and these scriptures are your message for us. Help us to more faithfully embrace it, not as human words, but as it actually is, the Word of God. Continue to make us more and more like Jesus, so that we may become more and more your agents of grace and gospel in this beautiful but broken world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.